All right, I should click. No, uh, wrong button. Crap. Welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode two. This week we've got All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar. Dewar. I don't know how to say his name correctly, and I really apologize. I should know that. I'm Ryan, and with me is my good friend and fellow host, Jacob. Hello. Yes. Welcome to our beautiful bi-weekly book club light. Book club light. Yeah. Uh, podcast where we get to put our big old book brains on display for all of the fine folks at home. Uh, God, we sound good. Mm-hmm. I listened to last week's episode. Delightful. Especially my part. Not so much you, but mostly me. But yes. Super excited. <laughs> To bring this podcast to you and just enjoy, you know, the the jubilation behind behind reading. So if you haven't read this book, speaking of reading, you should probably just turn this off, go pick it up and actually read it because the discussion we're going to have is not going to make a lot of sense to you uh, if you haven't read the book and it's probably going to ruin some stuff. Um, and it's a pretty good book. So uh yeah, just go read the book. Yeah, and if you're looking for some serious, hardcore, you know, intellectual literary analysis, just go ahead and turn it off too, because that's kind of not the speed we're at as well. We're a couple of guys, you know, we like we we like to read. We we enjoy you know the process, and and I think there are things to be taken from it. But the way we kind of go about it is we'll we'll chew the fat on some questions that we got maybe thinking uh, while we were reading the book, and we'll just sort of talk about a, a, a few things, but not super in depth analysis. But uh, before we get into that, we're going to give you a little brief summary about the book, tell you a little bit about the author maybe, and then we'll cap the episode off at the end with our beautiful little tiered rating system and maybe suggest the book for uh, for your friends and family or maybe, you know, donate it to a goodwill and never speak about it again. All right. So this week's book is All the Light We Cannot See, or I should say was, uh, by Anthony Doerr. Um, and Jacob has prepared yeah. a comprehensive summary super of what quick, this book Super quick, super dirty, just to kind of give you the little little tidbit to, to what your beak. So all light we cannot see. It's a little, it's just a little story about a boy and a girl uh, set on opposite sides of a conflict growing up during the escalating times during World War II, and it kind of uh, chronicles their stories and kind of the interconnectivities uh, thereof. And uh, also, there's a secret magical immortality uh, gem that's being <laughs> hunted by the Nazis. Uh, so that's cool uh, it, or interesting. Yeah. But no, it, it, it's it's a it's a fascinating book. Simple in its uh, sort of drawing power, but I think very very uh, very complex thereafter. Yeah. No. Uh, so this this is a outstanding book a little bit more mainstream than than stuff that i probably normally want to bring to the table yeah, i want to i want to interject that really yeah. quick i thought that we were going to just try to be like the book review podcast well, not review <laughs> yeah but book podcast hipsters and we would only uh, do things that were not mainstream yeah so i've i've got a i've got to admit that this has been on my reading list uh for a while okay i this uh was my first successful read through all the way, but on my third overall attempt. How far were the previous ones? Uh, I probably got like thirty, and then like sixty pages in before okay. I before I got distracted by other things. Okay, I was gonna say, having read the book, I can understand 
that kind of wall you hit there. Uh, but we can get into that later. So anyway, Anthony Doerr. Yeah. So uh, the the book is it was very well received. It was a uh, National Book uh, Award finalist in 2014. He won the Pulitzer for Fiction in 2015. So um, as far as books go, big fucking deal. Um, and you know, we'll we'll talk about our overall assessment uh, toward the end of the podcast when we get into our ratings, but um, just a little bit about the author. Um, He is currently living in in Boise, Idaho, Uh, got his MFA from Bowling Green University, which is uh, a really good writing program. Actually, a friend uh, go there and uh, get her MFA in uh, Master's of Fine Arts uh, for the plebeians. I understand (laughs) acronyms. Thank you. Well... I kind of had not, a glazed, the, the glazed over look wasn't for Bowling Green no, or just, it was for Boise. Like disinterested. Oh yeah. Actually, I, there are a lot not, of writers I, that live in Boise. You know, I'm not and, talking shit about Boise. Reason. Boise, I think gets a bad rap. I think Boise is a, a very nice place. I, I've never been I've never so been there. I, I have no, I have no opinion. Uh, I bet their potatoes are delicious. Uh, I, I think that's that a fair assumption. That is a very assumption. common, I'm sure, uh, stereotype of Boise. So I'm sorry if there are any Boiseans, Boisens, Bosians, <laughs> Idahoans, Idahoans listening, then I apologize for lumping you all in a potato basket. See, lump because it's potatoes. Anyway, continue, please. Yeah, no. So that, that I mean, that's kind of long and short of it. Uh, you know, when you guys look at this guy's resume, he's written some other books. Um, and, you know, based on this one, I would I would go pick up another one of his for sure. He's done sure. a couple of memoirs. Uh, some other fiction stuff. Uh, definitely be interested in, in reading something else. But somebody until this one, by you know all uh, indications as far as like awards and recognition, has sort of flown under the radar. So um, that's that's kind of cool. But uh, that's pretty much what I've got on uh, got on him. Not quite as uh, colorful as as Hemingway was last week or. Um, our next author uh, or writer will be spoilers. Uh, spoilers will be not next yet. week. I'm not, 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 not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. But uh, also a, a somewhat colorful guy. So uh, this week's episode, we're just going to go through our normal uh, questions, and then um, well, I shouldn't say normal questions because they're never the same. Uh, but then we'll get to our ratings at the end, and uh, then we'll we'll preview our uh, our next book. Well. So, all right, before we get into the questions, because yes. I, I do like we, we kind of went over the questions before the show, and I like what we've got there. Um, I mean, the thing that struck me most, I just want to get into it real quick about okay. this book, was, uh, and I guess we addressed it earlier, you know, you you're in previous reads of this book, you kind of got 30 in and 60 in and stopped and maybe yep. other things that kind of pulled you away. The thing for me with this book is, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it in more detail during my reading. I enjoyed the book. Okay. I would definitely recommend the book. Um, but it was tough for me at first to get into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we're this 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 kind of commonality thread that we're trying to have. Like, okay, we're going to use it, a reference to a previous book. Well, we have one other previous book that we've done. That's <laughs> right, anyway. Right. So, the writing styles of the two very different. Yes. Um, I think we faulted a lot of. Uh, we were kind of you know moderately positive and moderately negative in terms of of the the faults of kind of how Hemingway writes, and it's very just sort of. He just didn't age well. Like, yeah. I mean, as far as some of his themes and language and stuff in comparison right. to more modern. The, and, so. and, and, and to be fair, this is, I mean, this book came out in 2014. So it's, yeah, it's, it's much book. more, it's much more digestible in that. But at the same time, just, uh, it's very, very verbose. Like yeah. it's very, it's, it's, it's different. It's, it's, it's very descriptive and it's actually the, the writer is incredible at, at, 
at just sort of it, it kind of uh, I don't know at, at eliciting like all of your senses whenever you're whenever you're picturing these things that they're describing whenever right. he's describing the town or just kind of the aftermath and things of that nature. But I will say that it's it it's something you have to kind of adjust to, and once you get sure. past that first little that first little kind of wall of the first I don't know the first quarter or a third of the book yep then you pick up on it and things kind of get rolling um and so i enjoyed that but i could the, the, what i was saying is i could definitely relate to that idea of like you're you're getting into it this is not a this is not like a light read this isn't something that's very straightforward and it's not going to be something that it's like okay i i don't need to sort of maybe go back and reread this i will yep. i will say though that we talked about this also is that the chapters however are structured to kind of counteract that yes very short chapters um, and I like that, it, like the ideas kind of that we're, that we're covering the chapters, a lot of them, it, it kind of, it starts, it builds, and then it comes to a nice end ready to move into kind of whatever the next point of the story is. Right, so the chapters right. are very readable in that manner. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciated the fact that it did kind of, it did kind of have a different style in terms of just reading compared to. The yeah. previous what we had done with Hemingway. You know, one thing talking about the the beginning of the book. One thing that um, I don't think really worked well as far as grabbing my attention was the flash forward in the beginning. Um, yeah, I feel like that's a really good device in like movies sometimes. Yes, um, and there's there are certain directors that will uh, use that really effectively to kind of have this um, sort of constant undercurrent of like what the fuck happened? When are we going to get to that? Like, where is this going kind of thing? And for me, that flash forward almost always has to have that sort of like that thing that grabs your subconscious attention throughout the rest of whatever. Sure. And I don't feel like it was very effective, um, at least for me personally in, in this book to sort of make me wonder, as a matter of fact, it wasn't until, um, I'd gotten to, you know, the, the last third of the book when we sort of caught up with, that timeline that I even realized that um, that was kind of a flash forward and kind of went back and thought about it a little bit. So it, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was just me being stupid, but um, it just really didn't didn't do a lot for me in this, in this I'll, book. I'll agree with that somewhat. Yeah, I think that the whole idea of I like the idea of the disjointed narration, right? Like a lot of times you know, a, a linear narration, you know, it's cool and it's, you know, but I like the idea of playing with time and it can it can and it, it, if it's effective it can build suspense because you have these sort of notes that it's like i don't know exactly what got me to that point and now i'm interested in what happens after that point but i have all of this back you know you're you have this sort of suspenseful thing in the back of your mind but yeah. i agree that it, i think it works better in visual storytelling in movies tv things yeah. like that where as it's not as potent at least for mm-hmm. me, if I'm reading something, it's like, oh man, the suspense. It's less, I don't know, it's less potent for me in digesting than uh, than if I'm watching a movie I or, agree. or something like that. But I, I think I think the other thing that's difficult sometimes with literature is that you have to engage so much more than you do oh, with absolutely. like a movie. So it's it's easier to forget, you know, where you were just a minute ago, sure. um, because you're trying to grab all the details. And yeah, nuance. and this is this is not a passively read book. This no. isn't a book that you can just sort of like, oh, I have the TV on in the background. I have this other like, no. I, I normally whenever I read, I'll like have music on or something. I had to turn it off. I like yeah. I, I had to kind of deduct. Yeah, you know, deduct. <laughs> I had to sort of focus all of my you know mental energy into reading the book, and and I enjoyed the story. But yeah, it's that's that's one of the things that I like. I like that more in a visual medium. Yeah. 
than uh, than I guess you know in fiction. So let me let me let me ask you this question. Um, speaking of you know kind of disparate storylines, we really had two main storylines, right? We had yeah. Marie Lurie, um, which we're just going to butcher all uh, just semblance Marie, of language. Just call her Marie and we're, Warner. We apologize. We're not French, yeah, or German. I'm well, you're, German. You're kind of German, I, I can't, but you're not yeah, from Germany. But I'm not going to... Yeah, so, no, no. I'm only, pronun- oh, we're from Texas. Only our quarter. pronunciations yeah. will be terrible, um, so we're going to make it easy on ourselves. So we really had those two main storylines. Marie and, then, and Warner, yes. And then uh, Von Rumpel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of interjected in there, but... International of, famed jewel thief. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but of, of the Rumpel. two, what was your... Which storyline did you prefer? I liked Warner. Okay. Uh, I do think that both were very uh, compelling characters. Obviously, uh, Marie a lot revolved around just kind of her, her the difference between kind of her experiences in the world due to her blindness mm-hmm. and just that compounded with the events going on around her. Not even just that they're experiencing the war, but that they're fleeing and that they, you know, she wasn't necessarily... Uh, informed about everything kind of surrounding her situation. Uh, and so that just kind of the being caught in that compounded with the fact that she's blind uh, was just kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting storyline. But I did yeah. enjoy, I enjoyed Werner's a little bit more. Why? Uh, it was more so just the, the idea of, you know, surviving mostly just, you know, you, when you meet him, he's, he's a young kid and he's an orphan and he sees that his, you know, kind of his destiny is to work in the coal mines or his, the way his life is headed to work in the coal mines. And, you know, it's just a horrible kind of existence. And so trying to do everything he can, uh, to avoid that, whether it's, you know, having that interest in, in, uh, in radios and, yeah. and, and science and that nature. And just sort of by that, you know, kind of being a thread that gets him out of, out of that, uh, you know, potential future outcome. And, and although it's not, it's not great, you know, he gets into the, his, yep. his academy and he's learning uh, about this, but I, I really found it interesting just more so just because it kind of like everything about his story um, comes down to just sort of agency versus duty, right? Yep. Like uh, regardless of how you personally felt about, you know, his own personal beliefs, mm-hmm. whenever he was in this academy, you know, he had a duty to kind of, to, to do, you know, what he needed to do for his country. Right, and, right. And that just kind of the the conflicts between the the heinous things that were being sort of told and, and, and expressed at that time to him and just kind of how he how he slowly started kind of separating over the course and, and just kind of his interactions and his writing back and forth with his sister. I found that more compelling for me personally just because I enjoy the idea of the complexity, because typically whenever you have a war, well, I say typically, but, you know, uh, whenever you have sort of a war novel or a war movie, mm-hmm. it's very, you you have some gray areas now. Now storytelling has gotten a little bit better in the sense right. of kind of like we want to explore the idea of grays on both sides. And it's not so, it's not so, you know, good versus evil and things of that nature. Right, right. And so I appreciate the idea of of having complexity in the, in the bad guys. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the Nazis obviously in this book are the bad guys. Um, but (laughs) Werner offers that sort of complexity in, in the idea that it's like, okay, the Nazis, yes, you have this sort of machine, this sort of overarching thing that is, is terrible and inflicts this just horrible, 
ideology and just does all of these awful things. But at the same time, you have these people that are unfortunately caught up in it that it's like, okay, right. What are, what are you, what do you do? I mean, are you complicit or do you, you know, act against it, uh, at your own peril? I right. mean, it's kind of one of those things where it's, it's, I find that is an interesting facet of storytelling in, in wartime is yeah. what about the innocent people or not even the innocent, but what about the, the gray people on the bad side. I yeah. find those stories. So, I find those stories more interesting. I, I do too. And save save that thought because I've I've got a question revolving around that that I, I want to save for a little bit later. But I actually liked Marie's storyline okay. more. Well, I, I shouldn't say liked it more. I found it more compelling um, because f- there was always a sense of suspense because of her blindness sure. that never went away. And even if it was just mundane stuff. Um, I was always concerned that the character was going to get into a situation um, because of her blindness. And and frankly, she never really did, if you think about it. Like, once she sort of learned to navigate um, before they even went to, to San Malo, um, like, she became autonomous. Um, you know, there were certainly things that, you know, she was confused maybe about what was going on at the time or the exact detail where people were, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the house or whatever it was. Right. Um, but regardless, there was still always this thing in me that I was like, this is going to come back and bite her. Like, you know, I'm, I'm always concerned. And, you know, I, th- I think, um, it, if you think about like how I read, I visualize everything, right? Like, um, and, and I'm sure most people do that. And so I, I sort of, you know, could appreciate how difficult it was to write a character who couldn't necessarily describe like the way that a room looked, but the way that a a room smelled, the way that a room felt, how many steps it was to something instead of, you know, whatever. And I, you know, I'd like to go back if I ever read this book and pay a little bit more attention to exactly, um, how he used imagery for that character. But, you know, there, there are things that immediately come to mind where I'm like, ah, wow, that's like, that's a tough thing to do. And, you know, he did it really, really well, um, in a lot of cases. So I don't know. I, and, and I think there, there's something to be said too, for, uh, kind of the being on the other side of things, right? Like, you know, she had to flee Paris, um, and then, you know, kind of not knowing what was happening during the occupation or when, you know, the allied forces were, were coming in and, and bombing the city and stuff. Um, so I just think there's a heightened level of suspense for me with, with, with her versus Warner, who for me was just sort of, um, kind of an opportunist, right? Like he's a kid who came from nothing other than a sister. He didn't really have any, um, any real stake in anything, right? right? Like if he, if he lost everything that really wasn't that much, um, and with her, it was, it was different. She had her dad. Now she had this, you know, uncle that she had built the the relationship and, and, uh, Madame Manek, um, and, uh, and, and all of that. So, uh, I don't know. I, it's, I found her, her storyline, um, a lot more interesting to me. Uh, I will say this, like I said earlier, I thought the author did a really good job of incorporating kind of all of your senses. And I think that's obviously very apparent when you're, when you're reading the Marie storyline, because so much of it is, you know, like you said, you're describing things by the sound or the feel or the smell. Um, The big thing for me is I think, I don't know this book, which do you think it would work better as if, if you had to remove one storyline from 
That's the thing for me is I think this book, I think this book, if it's a, a if it's question. just the Werner storyline, I think it's still a book. But I don't think, obviously, I don't think it's as good. I think it's okay. If it's the Marie storyline, I think it's a little bit harder to make just a strictly a book from that storyline. So I, I think know, I think Warner's I think Werner's is more um I think it's more kind of isolated in a sense that it, it's kind of a it's it's sort of its own story and hers I think is more dependent upon kind of the the other events going on. Well yeah but like if you if if you really like ripped Warner out of out of the story completely like I think Marie could stand alone because you have the you have the uh escape with the jewel and, yeah. and hiding all of that stuff. You've it would got, have, a, it would, I mean, the book would have got a different the relationship feel. with her dad. Like, I think I mean, it's, it's doable, but if I think if you just had Warner, you just, you just have a kid, you know, trying to, you know, make it in the army and uh, I don't know, like reach his potential, like not be in the mines. I well, don't know. I, that's what I'm saying. I think it would be strange if you, if you separated the stories into two completely separate, separate yeah. books, obviously you would have to make changes in terms of, kind of the the climax and things like that, but the basic idea of those mm-hmm. characters and took their stories and separated them. It would be interesting, but I think that yeah. they play well together. I think that that, although there's, I will say, I was expecting, based on kind of at the beginning, you know, when you have these flashboards and they're and both characters, you're expecting, okay, there's going to be a lot, there's going to be a lot of convergence yeah. and sort of a unified storyline and, and, and interesting things going from that. And... I felt like it wasn't really all that much. Like I felt like a lot of it was they had the two the two separate storylines and I thought it played very well with each other and they would initially they would initially, you know, throughout the book they would pepper in a little bit of the time right, uh, right. play and it'd be like, Okay, the, this is converging, it's converging, it's converging, keep going, the story's converging. And then it converges and then it's very abruptly, you know, kind of just over. Yeah, so I mean, Warner helps helps her escape, kills uh, Von Rumpel, and uh, and uh, you know gets her out of the city. Tells her you know to wave the white flag and all that. She gives him the key, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, from there, it, it never really comes back together until sure. until the end, sort of the prologue of the book. Um, you know, which honestly, I th- I think that whole thing there was one interesting piece of it to me. Uh, but I think that after all of that kind of sucked, like, yeah. to be honest, like I didn't need the, you the know, closure, the like 30 yeah, the years later, years, yeah, whatever we found all of these supply and then, yeah, I get that. You know, I don't, I, I think that was more so to end the book in a, I, I think, I think maybe the author had a certain idea about how he wanted the book to end. Yeah. And you would need to like do that kind of separation from the event and, and kind of the. Now she's old and she has a kid, and, mm-hmm. you know. So the the one thing, I, just jumping back for a second, the one thing I really liked about uh, Warner's storyline, which I think is something that, like, as Americans, we forget because of, you know, my own family ties to all of this, um, is that not everybody had the conviction of, you know, the, the leaders uh, of the country of that time. Um, you know, just like now, you know, people live in a place and they go through the motions, they take what opportunities they can. And I think Warner is a really good representative of, you know, somebody who just was in this environment and sort of, it was like a make it or break it thing, right? Like it's either, you know, you can 
take this this talent that you have and, and go do this awful thing with it um, where, you know, you don't feel great about it, but you don't feel awful either. Or you can do, you know, this really awful thing and go, you know, live and die in the mines, basically. Yeah. Um, so I, I do appreciate that about him. Since you like Warner so much, how did you feel? <laughs> Since I like Warner. Well, I just, no, so I, 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 I like, I like Marie more as a character. I just, I like the thing that drew me more to Warner's story was, was basically just the idea of agency and, sure. and kind of the fate. And, and when you're in these type of events and it, it kind of goes hand in hand with the question I had. Um, Let me the, ask you this one first before, because okay. that one is really dense and this one is simple. Were you satisfied by the way that Warner died or no. were you just like, what the hell? No, I mean, I, I understand that it's, it, I, to me, it kind of symbolized the idea of, of two things. One, just sort of the, yeah, I'm playing with these little like plastic things. Oh. I need to stop. <laughs> uh, just the idea of kind of how sporadic and, and just in this, in this situation, how it's just so, you know. I mean, so many characters, like so many things just sort of happen, you know, even in Marie's storyline with people getting sick and, yeah. and, you know, her father being taken and it's just, things just sort of happen abruptly. And that's, you know, it's not, it's not like in, in storytelling where you're like, oh, it's this grandiose way to die. You know, right. when most people die, they die. It's yeah. just this like horrible, just sort of incident. So him kind of wandering into a deliriously <laughs> into a minefield. Uh, yeah. I mean, no, I don't, I don't think it was satisfying, but I. I think that if they had, he had had like, oh, he was wounded and he bled out or something like that, you know, rescuing yeah. her. I think that would have been a little too cliche. I, I know. I, I, I kind of had the same reaction. It, for me, I, I didn't love like him dying in that manner. Um, but I respected it. I appreciated yeah, it. But I, I didn't want the, you know, like, oh, they'll find each other after the yeah, war. Or the, like happily thing. ever after yeah, sort of thing. Like, I was I was waiting for for that. Um once they uh, they started to converge, so thankfully that that didn't happen. Okay, so you have you have a dense question that that you wanted to ask. Yeah, it was just it, again it I it a similar thread to uh, Hemingway um, was this idea, this kind of nihilistic idea that during wartime you're just kind of caught up in in these emotions and you're just kind of going along with it. Um, so my question was, this book kind of addresses that a little bit um on Warner's side more so more so than Marie but even still on Marie's just because of her impairment a lot of that is mm -hmm. kind of that sort of idea is brought into it is is how much power how much agency how much control do individuals actually have during these type of settings during war or these other sort of extenuating circumstances how much control do you have over the events that that you that you have and how much control do you have over the decisions you make and and the the steps you take and how much of that is just sort of thrust upon you by circumstance you know i i always think personally that like war stories um are are really a good metaphor for just like life in general because yeah. in war you have these um very defined events that take place, right? Like you, you have armies that are, that are bombing cities. You have soldiers doing certain things. Um, and, uh, a lot of times you don't have control over what those people do. You know, like, um, if we talk about Madame, uh, and, and Marie actually, you know, trying to pass these codes and, you sure. know, Etienne doing his thing on the radio. Um, 
we never get a sense that that even does anything, right? Like, um, did that help the allies? Did was there any usable information? We don't know. Um, and well, there was the there was the bridge. There was like the German bridge that got bombed. Yes. that supposedly was the information passed by Etienne. So, but have I mean, you can see some result. But also, having done a fair amount of of research on uh, on the war in general, like. Bridges are targets of opportunity sure. and bombing. Sure, so sure, sure. you have to get back to an airfield. If you see a bridge, you bomb it. So it could just be circumstantial that it happened and, and not him at all. Um, but I do, I do think it's it's really interesting. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a, a personal anecdote. Um, my my grandmother uh, lived through World War II in Germany. Yeah, and uh, she was in her house. Uh, there was a house across uh, an alleyway that was uh, maybe 15 feet, 20 feet uh, across. Uh, it got bombed. House was leveled. The houses next to her, um, which were, you know, th- these houses are probably maybe 40, 50 feet wide. They're, they're not big. Sure. Um, both of the houses next to her got bombed. The house behind her um, completely gone and then kind of up all the way uh, through the town. And, uh, you know, so she has made the point to me several times that like, how can you, you know, not believe that there's a God because, you know, I survived this and I'm like, well, you know, well, I they mean, didn't and they didn't. Yeah, they exactly. Didn't. Exactly. Like I, I, I sort of take that exact view. Like, you know, you were the, the one person. Yeah, you were extremely fortunate. But guess what? You might have been the one bomb that got stuck in the bay door um, because somebody didn't lubricate you know, something on the plane or something like, sure. you know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of all inconsequential in, in some way, but you know, you do what you can, I guess, you know, to, to get the result that, that you want to see, even if it, if it costs you something. Sure. I think that's the, the way to go. I mean, did you have feelings about, I mean, I, you know, I kind of agreed a lot on the sort of nihilistic approach that in the sort of, terrible circumstances you can make choices but a lot of a lot of what becomes of you and a lot of what you can do is it's it's severely limited by by circumstance by environment by by those sort of factors yeah. so that is it's depressing in 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 nature that you lack that sort of uh agency to 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 really control yourself now that doesn't mean that you can't make decisions that doesn't mean that you can't you know do things to try to to try to improve your situation, but right, I think sure. I, if I had to get, I, w- I would say it's like a 70-30 type situation of circumstance and environment determining a lot of what becomes of you in those extenuating circumstances, right? Based on kind of your own decisions and your own sort of agenda and and ability to navigate that. Exactly. Like I mean, just think about it in like you know real real world terms, like modern terms, right? Uh, if your company today. Um, decides, hey, we're going to automate the function that you do. Um, it doesn't matter if you're the best person on the job. Maybe that means that you get to monitor this new automation and you know make sure it works or check check its work. Um, you know, but the decisions that somebody else makes and uh, the technology available might mean you lose your job and yeah. you have to go do something else, despite you doing everything in your power to, you know, be the best employee that you can in every way possible. Um, 
you know, so that, I mean, obviously it doesn't mean that you just, you know, live this sort of like, well, fuck it. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. I, I might get, might get laid off at any point in time or, or whatever. Um, cause that'll get you fired. But, you and know, I, but I, I also, again, I, I limit that to extenuating circumstances, things sure. like wartime and those, those scenarios. Like we're not, we're not always in those type of scenarios. I, I certainly think that there's a lot more agency that you have over the control and the, and factors in your life. Whereas I do think that environment and things of that nature play a role. Um, sure. But I, I think in, in more like disaster environments or, or war or a lot of these sort of extenuating circumstances that they reduce your agency a ton. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of decision making, um, I think I, I want to talk about Marie's dad a little bit. Okay. So... He has the, um, the, what was it sea of flames? Is that what it's called? The diamond? I, I was Sea of flames. Sea of flames. Um, so he is the one that has, we assume the real one. Um, I, I don't know that it's ever like. It is. It's good for whenever they, cause oh, when you're Von right, Rumpel's, because they, yeah. he found the he other, finds he the finds other the fakes. Yeah. Right. So let's, let's, uh, can we get right. real, can we preface this, this whole Von Rumpel angle yes. uh, real quick? It's Please. the Jim Hunter angle. So the premise of it is, is that, you know, the, the, the Germans are invading, uh, France and they're almost to Paris. And so I guess they're trying to, uh, get out with some of these precious uh, jewels and, and precious artifacts, Parisian, you know, cultural things in order to prevent, I guess, you know, the Germans from sacking yeah. it and taking yeah. it and sort of, so they create three. So they have this, this priceless artifact gym, the cursed gym that gives you immortality. That's legend to give you immortality, but uh, makes everyone around you sort of befall these terrible things. Right. It's a very generic curse. Sure. So they make three copies of it and they have four of these gems and they send them off with a, a courier in all sorts of different directions so that the Germans will have a harder time trying to track down and find the real one. And at first we're to assume that Marie's dad, you know, probably has the real one and later yeah. in the book it's confirmed. But I mean, this, this whole angle of the story, I, I found it funny, but it was kind of strange. Uh, it, it was kind of strange. Like I get that it was a device just to kind of have this sort of antagonist outside uh, to kind of put a face on an antagonist instead of yeah. just having like the Nazis as the right. antagonist. Right. Cause right. they, the, the Nazis are the antagonist, but having kind of a more like we want to have a central character. Yeah. A, a face to a name. Yeah. And we want to have kind of, he's on a quest and we want to tie it into Marie somehow. Yeah. So they have, the gym, the sea of flames. Yes. So her dad. So, sorry, we um, I, I, we we kind of tangentially went off there talking about von Rumpel and the magical gems of misfortune. Yes. So which my, would be a great follow up book, by the way, von Rumpel and the magical gems of misfortune. We just talk about all the previous gym hunting missions that von Rumpel went on. I mean, he since kinda, he was he, a gemologist. Yeah, he kind of humble brags about a, a few like, oh, uh, I found these like paintings and like uh, you yes. know, uh, some other things, but I sure find the gems. Okay, so well, say hiding. So so here's here's my deal with uh, with Marie's dad. He has the gem, right? And he is relatively certain that he's got the gem, or at least takes his uh, job seriously enough that he acts like he does, right? Sure. Um, he gets called to Paris, 
obviously he is suspicious that uh, the you know wire or telegram or whatever he gets to call him back is not genuine. So he leaves the the jewel with his daughter in like the one thing that she owns instead of putting it somewhere that, you know, only he could come back to, he directly puts her in harm's way. And I get that to your point that it's necessary to keep the sort of protagonist coming toward the, toward the main character. Um, but as a father figure, why would you ever do something yeah, like th- that? Thanks, Dad. Send Von Rumpel to me. Yeah. The, your blind daughter. I mean, it, it just, it, it struck me as, I mean, just blatantly idiotic that uh, that he would he would do that to his daughter. If he felt in danger enough to not even take it with him, why the fuck would he leave it with his daughter? Well, why would he go in the first place? Well, I mean that there there's there's that whole angle too. Like, why leave your blind daughter in the first place? Like, if you have the sea of flames, like somebody it's it's a small world at that point like somebody's gonna know who you are and you know they're not living under pseudonyms the war ends whoever's looking for it can find it or he's gonna you know he seems like a stand-up guy other than this um he's gonna make his way back to the museum and drop it off and you know real fake or otherwise he's completed his mission so to say but that's just like i don't know did you well to be fair he was kind of a a victim of circumstance too because he was supposed to deliver the gym but the guy that he was delivering it to had left true they had gone so i mean in that situation you're kind of like uh you know i'm tasked with this i don't want to just like chuck it on the wayside and not have to deal with it you know i mean where else would he have really where else would he have tried to hide it i mean i guess he could have left it with etienne no i mean i i think anywhere where you're not is the best place Fair right enough you know i mean but what if he dies or what if i, I so think that's thing- gone i mean it, then at least he preserves yeah, the life of his his daughter I and guess. his, and his brother and or uncle i guess his uncle right it's yeah. his uncle yeah it's yeah. her great uncle so i mean he he saves lives and i mean it, it's it's lost to nature or time as opposed to being lost to nazis like there are worse things in the world i suppose fair enough i don't know so um from from the father, so obviously she keeps the gem, um, but then when she's fleeing, uh, goes down to that little like... Um, the grotto. Yeah, grotto. Thank you. I was, couldn't remember the word. Leaves the house and the gem together. Warner goes back after she gives him the key and grabs just the house. Any any thoughts on like, why do you, why do you think Warner would do that? Like, do you... Well, I mean, obviously it's, you know, you're kind of building up the idea of like, oh, he had like fallen in love with her. And so I guess the house was kind of a keepsake, a memento of that. And, yeah. you know, nothing struck me from his personality as someone who's like, oh, I really need to get this super special gym or I need to take this gym back to the Nazis real quick. Let me just do that. So well, I think and he it didn't was seem to so, be motivated by money or anything. Yeah, either. I think it was more so it was like, oh, you know, I want this. I want the the house, the keepsake. Yeah, I just I don't know. It seemed it seemed strange to me that uh, I mean he he obviously had to open it to get the gem out. I think because it wasn't yeah it was like because like it was like a puzzle box yeah. yeah it was like a little puzzle box wooden so, house. So I mean I don't know that 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 to me was just sort of beguiling about you know what that meant and maybe that was that was it that um, 
you know, I think the house in and of itself was symbolic too, right? Because like, you know, when Warner built his radio um, and then, you know. That's that's the other thing too is that whenever he, he realizes early on, whenever he hears the transmissions and stuff that this is the this is the radio broadcast I listened to as a child. This is what made me interested in science and the world around me and all this other stuff. And right. so I can see in another way too, it, it, it has that also that crossover appeal of this was, this is what, you know, this idea, this, this radio, this information that I was, that I received as a child is what helped me get out of, you know, you know, my, my predetermined path to the coal mines right. and, and black lung and, you know, all of these <laughs> other things. So I can see that in a way too, is this idea of, you know, kind of this was, this was the, this was hope. This was my silver lining that kind of got me out of that situation. I, I can understand the sentimentality there for that. Okay. All right. So let's, we've got like two, I've got one more serious question and um, I know that you have a sort of mist myth busters esque yeah. we, we, question. We, we plugged it in the last episode with your with stupid, the rowing thing. stupid boat question. Was that a stupid and we've got question? Another, I feel well like it's, out. I feel like it's our job to dissect, to hyperanalyze weird little one-offs that happen in books in our in our uh, in our new segment it's gonna literary mythbusters. Well, do we want to hit that or do we want to get the serious ones? No, no, no. I want to I want to do this one before before we get into the serious okay, ones. Okay. So in this book, uh towards the end uh, Werner and uh, a few of his his compadres, uh, they're in a, uh, I guess it's what, a hotel? They're in a hotel basement, and it's bombed. Yeah, it's collapsed on Yeah, it's, com- it's completely collapsed. There's rubble everywhere, and uh, they're trying to figure out how exactly to free themselves. And the idea that they come to eventually is they're going to use a grenade, and they're going to throw it at a collapsed staircase in hopes that the explosion will clear the rubble, thus allowing them to be freed from the collapse. Now, they weren't just, you know, idiots and threw the grenade and stood there and wait. You know, they they had shelter. They had a wall or something yeah, behind. Yeah. But I just, I to me, it's, you know, sometimes you're reading or you're watching in movies or you're doing, you're taking in sort of fiction and it, it, it all falls in the realm of suspension of disbelief where you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, they just throw a grenade to, yeah, to clear yeah. out the rubble. I mean, we've seen that before. You've seen that before in war movies. They're like, sure. oh, we got to blow a hole in this or we have to clear this out. So we'll use a grenade or something like that. And. I don't know. I've never in my mind thought like legitimately is that would that work? Could you do that? Um, until now, yeah. I, I question whether or not that's actually something that you can do. I mean, I, I don't know how big the basement was. There, there does there wasn't a lot of clarity on on its exact size, but it didn't sound like it was a massive room. But you have to imagine one that um, grenades, even of that period would carry with it some sort of shrapnel, right? Like yeah. that's that's its main purpose. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm saying. It's not so much that it's anti-personnel it's not, device. Yeah, it's not a charge used to specifically clear rubble, you know, it's not right. like C4 or something that's yeah. used to Um yeah, I I think that uh I think if you tried that trick, it would uh it would not work very well because I would imagine most of the blast would get redirected back into the room. Like I, I'm again, I'm not a scientist or, or, or even anything. just kind of the heat or just sort of the sure. if you're in an enclosed space and yeah. you set off an explosion, just the gas, the pressure, the, the heat, I would imagine like yeah, the would be, wave, like yeah. That would be much more damaging to you yeah. than it would be for trying to clear out rubble. Um but shout out to Volkheimer for uh being 
a fucking beast. Yeah. Like, that guy sounded awesome. Yeah. Like not Water only Kaiba. he kind of reminded me of like TJ in a way. Uh, so we, we have we have this friend <laughs> okay. that's like uh, six four. Um, he's like six five. He's six, a tall guy. He's he's, guy. A re- he's a real tall guy. Uh, if you looked at him, you would be intimidated by him. But he's he's a damn teddy bear when you get to know him. Um, and Volkheimer kind of reminded me of, yeah. of him in a okay. way, um, just a little quieter, sure. uh, for, for the most part. But anyway, uh, yeah, I don't think the grenade thing is a good idea. I don't think in reality that would have worked or that they would have survived, but I think it was, a Sorry. an act of necessity at that point. Well, they sure. I mean, if you're in, while. you're in a collapsed basement, you know, there's not a whole lot else you can do. I understand that it's kind of like a last desperation type maneuver, but yeah, something about it is just like, yeah, I don't think that would work. But much like we said, we're going to get in a rowboat and we can time ourselves trying to row the entirety of the distance Henry Road uh, in our previous episode of Literary Mythbusters. Maybe we yeah. can okay, so collapse you, a building on us yeah. and then we can try to blow open a hole with a couple of uh, frag grenades. Okay, so here's what here's what we'll do. Um, I'll find the collapsed building. You get the grenades and good luck. Uh Getting past Homeland Security and everybody else. Why would I have to get past Homeland Security when I'm already here? If you, if you, we shouldn't Google, joke about this. Google, no, I joke about but this. But if you Google like grenade like purchase, you're gonna come up on somebody's incognito list. mode. Bro. So I think this is <laughs> this is just one that we might need to test in like Call of Duty or something. And That's just see a good what point. That's a good point. All right, so we've got a couple serious serious questions left. Um, well, let's let's start with yours because I think yours is is the more important one. Um, oh, actually, you you already asked. Yeah, we did. About the, the, about we did the the, uh, the agency and the. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Um, so the the last one that I had left was was really about Judda um, Warner's sister. Okay, and um, she has this um, at the end of the book, sort of like aversion and guilt. It seems uh, about her placement in the war, like being German um, yeah. and then, uh, you know, Warner's involvement in, in all of that kind of stuff. Um, Before we get into this yeah. real quick, just to, just to, to backtrack real quick, because I, I completely forgot to cover this. I think Judda is also a really, really important part of Warner's story in terms of like humanizing that whole aspect because she kind of represents yes. that idea of, you know, this is horrible. The, the kind of the, the, the German or the, yep. the person who's on the bad side who resists the idea of, you know, what you're doing or the, the fact that you're just complicit for survival that's in opposition of that. And so I think that she was a really important factor in the letters between them two in terms of kind of yep. having that internal turmoil throughout the entirety of Warner's story um, up until the part where he's, you know, deployed and they don't really no longer talk. So I think Giotto is actually a really key, important uh, person in that storyline. And I think kind of at the end, what you're talking about getting into this sort of idea about her, I think is, uh, I don't know, that's one of the, that was one of the, uh, like I said, that was one of the drawing points to that part of the story for me is the idea of the gray and and even the, maybe the white on the, on the wrong side. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's something that, I think is really interesting. Um, so if you, if you think about their, their ages, uh, Warner was, was 14, right? Or I'm sorry, 16, well, 16 toward, yeah. toward the end of the war. 
would have been 19. Uh, he would have been born in what, 20? So he's 6 and 34, so he would have been born in 28. 28. Okay, so he's five years older than than my grandmother would have, would have been. And um, at that point, the the Nazi Party was was you know well on its way to power sure. and and already enacting um, all of the all of the things that that it did, um, including just sort of the indoctrination into you know its its general mentality that the Hitler Youth and uh, and all of that um, you know were were well underway at that point in time. So. Um, Actually, seeing some of my grandmother's um, opinions that you know are undoubtedly formed by the propaganda of the time, and you know, considering that that Judah is is a few years older than her, and her aversion to that sort of stuff, and in her way, um, and a lot of it is through uh, I, f- I forget who the woman is that that ran the orphan uh, the orphanage. Um, Frau, I, yeah, I can't, can't remember her, her name, name for either. the life of me. And some of it seems to be sort of learned through through them. But mm-hmm. but her autonomous thinking, um, despite all of that stuff, uh, I think is really important and, and really does say a, a lot about a lot about her. And then you know if you then fast forward to the um, you know twenty or thirty year epilogue, whatever it was, at the end of the book, and uh, Volkheimer uh, goes to. Uh, goes to find her and give her uh, Warner's effects and stuff. She's very clearly doesn't want to be involved. Um, she feels, you know, some some level of guilt about about what's going on. And, you know, from what I understand, there there is sort of this this culture in, in Germany of, of kind of guilt sure. about, you know, what is what has gone on. And, uh, you know, obviously, rightly so, there, there, there were some atrocious things that happened, um, you know, but then again, you think about like our, our own station, like in, in life as, as Americans, um, I, there are probably things that, that we should be ashamed of. And, and, uh, I wanted to ask you, like, is there anything in American history that, um, that you feel uncomfortable with like Judah did, um, you know, with her brother's involvement and stuff. And, and what is that? And, you know, why do you, why do you feel that way? I mean, it's tough just because, uh, you know, in her circumstance, it's kind of directly, she was alive, she was involved and she was sort of a part of that whole process taking place. And, you know, as Americans, we don't have the greatest history and, and sure. But, you know, things like slavery, it's I'm, I'm so far removed from that, that, you know, the effects, yes, you, I feel, you know, upset about the effects, the negative effects that affect different ethnic groups, obviously, because sure. well, not different ethnic groups <laughs> and ethnic groups <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, because of that. And, and when you think about, you know, kind of just sort of the colonial, colonial, uh, colonialization and those sorts of things, but you're so far removed from that. Yeah. I think the closest thing would be kind of just, um, the way that I, uh, the early 21st century kind of, uh, Middle East policies and yeah. sort of kind of the regime building, uh, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, those sorts of things, kind of the destabilization of those. Not that it's necessarily, you know, it's, it's a complex, it's a complex, problem right because you you have guys like Saddam Hussein who obviously were terrible in their own right but the actions of your country is completely destabilized and ruined just millions of lives and and things that and and just kind of have set forth these sort of 
these gears and these motions in a place that have had a profound effect on numerous people in the area and even outside of the area. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is, there is sort of that kind of implicit, like, oh man, like it sucks that that's something that we as a people are responsible for. And granted, you know, early two thousands, I was, I was 12 years old. So it's not necessarily something as a kid, you feel that guilt for, even though I wasn't necessarily, you know, of age to, to actively participate. That's it's recent enough in your mind and you're seeing, you're seeing the immediate effects, you know, things that have happened decades or even centuries that you're removed from you can see the effects but a lot of the effects are they're harder they're it's it's not something that's like staring you right in the face it's like this is because of you know your group of you know your nation your your group have done this you know this is the the aftermath of that it's yeah but i think in that circumstance yeah it's 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 apparent and you feel for it because it's you know you can't you can't think of anything other than it's like man i feel really guilty that these people have you know suffered because of you know what we've done you know i, I think Regard- and it's yeah. even like regardless from political like regardless if it's like if you feel that you know all right their action was partially justified or completely justified or unjustified at all the the whatever the whatever the reasoning behind it the result is that you've had this complete destabilization and all these people that have been negatively impacted by it and yeah. you feel for them regardless of whether or not you feel anything about the intent or the decision to do what it is. Yeah, and you know, I I think the the thing for me is like um the hardest part is not knowing what to do about it, right? Sure. Like and I think Judda is, is is sort of in the same way, right? Like if you think about, she didn't really have any direct involvement other than, you know, it sounded like they did sort of the uh, the women's version of the Hitler Youth stuff, you know, sewing socks and, you know, um, you know, just rations war effort and all. Stuff. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah, just that, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, she did have her brother, um, you know, who, who did his thing and stuff. But she doesn't really seem to know how to react to it. She doesn't know how to engage with Marie, you know, um, and sort of apologize. Not that she's really, you know, the one that needs to apologize for anything. And I think sometimes that's the that's the hard thing as Americans, too, especially as far removed as we are from even something like civil rights, like our, you know, our age, we're. By the way, Jacob's in his late twenties. I'm in my early. 30s. Late, tw- I'm thirty. You thirty? <laughs> I turned. 30 oh yeah, that's year. right. I, I forgot that you were thirty. I should have let. I should have so, let that. Uh, I should have yeah, just let no, that slide. So, so you know, we were you know well after the you know the civil rights movement and that sort of stuff. But, but you see the effects of that, right? And, and, and the backlash from that, right? And race is, is it is still a, um, a topic of conversation in our country. There are still challenges that we have not overcome as a society. Uh, I mean, fuck, even guns, right? Like. Um, you know, these are all things that um, that we constantly have sort of churning in the in society that it's hard sometimes to know um, back to your earlier point of like, how do my individual actions like even contribute to this sort of bigger thing that's sure. happening? Um, and, you know, I think for for me, like as an American, I've I feel um I feel guilty sometimes more about like 
how to engage to make things better than um than like you know what has actually been done before right like because because like you said like i didn't really have a part in slavery yeah. you know um See, you know that wasn't that wasn't my that wasn't my thing um you know but i certainly want to make things better you know there there are legacy issues that result from that that i just don't know like what to do about it you know yeah see see earlier i said guilt i don't know for me like if i'm thinking about the feelings it's less guilt and it's more so like you just feel like you feel bad like yeah. like like guilt i guilt i associate a lot with kind of like personal like personal decisions and like personal yeah. actions and it's hard for me it's hard for me in a country of, you know, 200 something million people or whatever to 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 take to feel like a personal connection to the actions that are that are kind of made. But you can feel like a sadness for the people that are negatively affected by by things regardless. So I don't know if guilt yeah. guilt is guilt is tough because it's not it's not so much that it's like, oh, you know, I feel so guilty for this situation because the reality of it is, is, you know, you don't play that much of a role if if it's like your personal actions, let like let's say you, you know, you were a staunch, you know, oh, we should go to war with you know Iraq, and I'm you know I'm yeah. protesting, I'm doing all this to make sure that we go do that, and then then I feel like you would be doing going kind of going above and beyond, and at that point guilt could be something that you know you would feel yeah, guilty take, for, yeah. or something like that. Like if you had a hand in that, it's tough, man. It's tough as a as kind of. You know, we've talked about this before. You kind of, uh, you know, the agency that you have, and and even you know that you had spoken, kind of the the leaders and the control and the power that they have to sort of shape, you know, the, I don't know the, how everyone, you know, you're you're responsible for that whole group as a whole, and and yeah. sort of the power that's wielded there for good or for, you know, bad. It's, I don't know, but I, I definitely do understand that feeling from. Uh, from Jutta and you know I and I understand that kind of the correlation with the real life feeling that that people that lived during that era and even people now yeah. kind of after they have it's just it's it's strange I don't I don't know I I don't think I experience a personal uh level of guilt like that but I do certainly feel I don't know I feel like it, it you you are sad because as a human being sure. you can empathize sure. with other people and you can empathize with with situations and you never want to be personally responsible for that. And, and even better, you don't want you would never want to wish that right, upon people. Right. So when it happens, you know, it's kind of just like, a, you know, it's it's a sadness and it's a, you know, what can I I mean, what can I do in, in a lot of situations? You, you feel yeah. powerless. It's like, what can I do to help? What can I do for this? And, you know, one one thing I think that that he gets wrong about Jutta is, um you know, again, Warner's sort of a victim of circumstance in, yeah. in that, you know, he, he joins up because of, you know, where he was in life and, and where things are, you know, politically and what expectations are, what happens if you don't, you know, um, you know, sort of contribute um, in whatever way you can. Well, and they show the, the you know, they show in a story the, the, the repercussions of going against kind of that, that idea. Yeah. And just... The, the, you know, everything is built up around him being kind of like self-preservation. Like, I'm doing this because I want to avoid the coal mines. I'm doing this because, you know, I want to survive and, and all this other thing. And Yeah, and, and, and she, you know, harbors this guilt of, you know, because of everything else that happened. But 
what I don't see from her is, you know, I think a much more realistic view of like, you know, this is what had to happen to us too. And, you know, terrible things happened as a result of us being forced into this situation, right? Like Warner had to die because he had to go join the military because he couldn't go to school um, and, you know, get an education and do something, you know, um, and you know, again, like anytime war comes up, especially World War II, I, I go to my grandmother and she has this, uh, this constant sense that, you know, sometimes people are, um, the common people are forgotten. The people that don't have the conviction that just go through the motions because they have to, to yeah. survive, they're sort of the forgotten victims of everything. So I think in, in that regard, he gets Judd's character a little bit wrong or potentially he gets her right. Well, it kind of touches on it at the end with like, the, the Russian occupation and kind of the, yeah. The, oh God, we didn't even talk about that. Like that's, you know, I just, all of that is, is real. Like, oh, no, I, I mean, it's just, it, there's, yeah, I've, yeah, that was, that was, a uh, an extremely graphic, like, thing to, to read, like, sure. I, I think just of everything the, else that happened. The lengths that people would go, you know, like, drowning daughters and, and things to prevent yeah. them from being, you know, assaulted and, and raped and, you know, just taken advantage of by this. Yeah. And, Again, it, it portrays we're talking about the gray on both sides and you know, the Russians, although they were they were part of the, you know, allies at the at the time, yeah. you know, there's there there there's so much nebulous levels of of uh of what's right and what's wrong on both sides in any type of conflict and, and just in general in life. Yeah. There's no universal, you know, standard for what is good and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong that that everyone kind of like, I'm on this side of the line and I'm right. on this side of the line. All right. So let's, let's pull back up. Um, you know, I, th- I think that, uh, that we've, we've hit on a lot of the major themes, although, you know, this, this book certainly, um, certainly was deep that we, you know, we could spend two, probably three podcasts just, you know, kind of sorting out, you know, minor details and all of this stuff. But, um, we need to get to, to actually rating this book the um, rating. in, uh, in our own way. And, uh, this week we're going to introduce, uh, by recommendation, a, uh, slightly amended way of, uh, of doing our rating system. So we're going to start with sort of phase one, which is keep or donate. Do we keep the book for ourselves? Do we go send it off to half price books or whatever? Regift it to a yeah. family member for yeah. That's a, a great holiday. idea. Uh, matter of fact, I I have a gift for you this evening that is exactly Ooh, that. I enjoy a good um, regift. And uh, if we decide to keep it, then uh, we'll go through you know top, middle, bottom shelf and and uh, align it on our bookshelf. So uh, my first question is: keep or donate? See. Here's the thing. Uh, all right. Well, I'm keeping it, but okay. Okay. I feel like donate now kind of inhabits that whole bottom shelf zone. Uh, I disagree. Or, or, or bottom shelf. I don't know. I, I guess there are reasons you could keep a book. For example, we're, we're del- my, uh, my uncle, mm-hmm. uh, self-published author. Maybe we'll get his book on here. Uh, oh my one God. time. Yes. Um, it's a book I'm not going to donate because it was given to me as a gift, and right. I, you know I appreciate that. But it's it's definitely not a top or middle shelf. It's not book. literary, is what you're it's, saying. It's it's a bottom shelf book. Um, sorry, Uncle Donnie. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I would never donate it. So I guess to be fair, there are a lot of personal reasons or anything like that. that yeah. Would... Uh, dictionaries are always bottom shelf. Okay. Dictionaries and literary criticism. All right. All right, all for, right. For, I mean, literally, uh, this is how I organize my bookshelf. Yeah, but we're never getting like, into those on our, on our, on our, on our, well, maybe we are. Maybe. No, no, no. The we're dictionary. not. We're not. I, I never want to be that guy. Uh, I, a I through took, F. That oh, would be a hell of a podcast. God. No. Um, okay. So we agree that we're, we're going to keep this. We're book. keeping it. Top or middle or I suppose bottom. Um, so we've, as we designated last episode, uh, tops, the best middle and then lower and it's right to left by positioning. So we can kind of position, uh, you know, accordingly books in the same tiers. It's really just tiers. And in relation to all the books that we've read so far. Sure. So last week, uh, I think we were both kind of, we said middle, 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 right. Yeah. Middle right tier. Like you would read it. It's not a book that you're just itching to reread all the time. This book, I think for me, would be top top shelf, somewhere between left and middle. It's not a okay. like it's not something I just am itching to pick up and read constantly. I could definitely see myself in a few months maybe going back rereading this book or in a few years, something like that. It's sure. I would it's certainly a book I would recommend. So I'd I'd keep it on the top shelf. If someone were to come over and say, Hey, here's a book you should read. It's right here on the top, you know, something kind of ever present in my memory. So I would say top, somewhere left to middle. Not not a not not a super fave, but I it's a solid book. Yeah, I think that uh, on my first complete read through, I would make this top middle. Okay. I think that this book definitely has potential upon further review to be like a top left for me. Oh, definitely. I, I will say this about the book. Um, I, it's definitely something that I would I would suggest to read and read again at a later time. Okay. So I think that that in and of itself elicits top shelf material right there. Yeah. The fact that I want to read the book again at some point in the future and that I would recommend for someone to read it and potentially reread it again in the future. Yeah, and and so if for some ungodly reason you listen to this entire podcast and haven't read the book, go go pick it up yeah. and, and read it for the love of God. Um, and if you did read it with us, uh, we have our our next book, and this is this was your writer selection. It was my writer selection. Which uh, is which is uh, William Faulkner. I I kind of deferred to you. I was like, you know what? I I kind of want to read some Faulkner. My yeah. sister had given me a bunch uh, for Christmas a few years back, and they've been kind of on the on the reading list for a while now. But they've been kind of buried. So you know, I figured we would uh, we would we would dredge one up and give it a go. And so the one that we're going with is The Sound and Fury. I believe the essential the essential first read for Faulkner, I believe, is something that you said. Yes. Well, something I, that we should get into first. Probably his I mean, it's his most famous work. I think not to get too ahead of ourselves, you'll come to the same conclusion about Faulkner that you did uh Hemingway. Okay. Which is that a little uh, dated? Shorter, yes, dated, uh, but shorter is better. I don't mind um, dated though. A Rose for Emily is is extremely well known. Um, so that's uh, I do, I'm interested to see what your what your opinions are next week about okay. this one. Um, I think our our literary. And you've read this before, correct? Uh, I've yes. Okay. Um, how long ago have you read this? Oh God, it was how old am I? Uh, it was at least ten years. Okay, ago. Okay, so this will be yeah. so it'll be a nice fresh yeah. reread. Yeah, for yeah. You. yeah. 
Um, and I think our literary tie-over, um, if you're having problems with the beginning part, is that the perspective of the first part of this book is from a mentally challenged uh, adult. I think he's in his 30s. Okay. Um, and it's kind of told from his perspective. So some of the things are weird. And obviously, um, in All the Light, uh, we had Marie who who had her her own challenge. Her um, yeah, that we're talking about him. So just kind of the related yeah. how you relate and storytelling so around th- impairmented. There is there is a direct immediate tie in, and then uh, we'll we'll see where this one shakes out. I like I like Faulkner. I think he does some some great stuff. Obviously, as far as like Southern American lit, like he's he's definitely as, as essential as as Hemingway is. As, uh, to American literature. So, well, fantastic. I'm excited about that next week. All right. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll figure out where we go from there. We'll, we'll come up with some random theme and, yeah. uh, we'll just get into some, we'll, we'll do our like Dr. Seuss, uh, month where yeah. we'll just, we'll bang out a couple of those each time. That, I, that would be great. Like, uh, I don't know. I w- we need to find like a really random tie in one time. Like, Oh, th- they mentioned red pants. So Here here's, go. here's another one book fish, with- two fish, red fish, blue <laughs> fish. Uh, there were fish in that. So, uh, yeah. fish lay eggs, green eggs and ham. Uh, I, I feel like, yeah, no, I feel like there's going to be a book that we, that one of us really wants to read and we're going to have to come up with some bull like response. Oh, for, I'm the king of bullshit. Like so it's so, fine. No, it's going to be great. We'll so, find any tie in we can get. All right, all the light, great book. Excited about the sound and the fury. Faulkner is uh, is good stuff. Um, so thank you for listening, and uh, and we'll get with you guys next week. Talk about some Faulkner. Oh baby. Oh.